0: Welcome to the Six Hats podcast, where I, Dr. Shammy, a lifestyle and nutritional medicine family doctor, will talk about how women strive to find balance each day by juggling their six roles, being a woman, mother, daughter, partner, business owner, and professional. I'm really excited to have Ryan Morgan today. Now, he is a registered psychologist with postgraduate training in non medication based approaches for addressing conditions such as sleep disorders. ADHD, stress, burnout, and of course, depression and anxiety, but also works with peak performance for students, athletes, and professionals. Now, what's really different about Ryan, and I'm so excited to have him today, is that he's also trained in nutritional medicine for mental health, brain health coaching, evidence-based neurotherapies such as neurofeedback, as well as clinical hypnosis for the prevention and treatment of brain-based dysregulation. Wow, Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: So, Ryan, we really wanted to talk about ADHD in particular today. And from my experience, and I'll just give a bit of statistics for our audience, is that one in every 20 Australians has ADHD. And it has been common practice to see that it's more common in boys, And also more than three in four children diagnosed with ADHD continue to experience the symptoms into adulthood. But what's really interesting is the diagnosis of ADHD in women or girls. And this is what I see in clinic. It tends to be overlooked in young girls and teens, even when they're struggling. And what the experts are saying is because we often are looking for that hyperactive presentation rather than the inattentive presentation of ADHD. So... Ryan, I'd love for us to start. What's ADHD and how do you diagnose it?
1: Yeah, I think that is the big debate. You know, what is ADHD? As you know, many even debate is it an actual condition? Does it even exist? Or is it the old hunter-gatherer style in our genetics and we just, you know, our hunters just don't fit into this current world? And when you work with a lot of individuals, you'll start to see some truth to that possibly. But the essential for ADHD is that it is regarded as a neurodevelopmental disorder. And typically, the onset before the sort of revisions of our diagnostic manual were around age seven. So there needed to be this kind of onset observed before age seven. They've sort of up, up the threshold now to age 12 so neurodevelopmental and it has three sort of core areas that we look to identify not that everyone will have them but that is the core of inattention the not the lack of the ability to pay attention but the lack of the ability to sustain attention on activities and tasks that generally are not novel or not overly stimulating so some of the routine maybe more boring things so it's that inability to sustain attention on that Or just shift your attention out of something you're really stuck on to other things that are maybe just as relevant and just as important. So there's that core inattention. The second would be the hyperactivity component that people probably know more of, uh, as you were mentioning earlier about the boys. And that's the old hyperkinetic, that's the movement disordered aspect of ADHD, concert still fidgety, even vocal verbal tics, you know, any kind of. Movement or body based manifestation that looks restless. And then the third would be the impulsivity, which is really the disorder of inhibition, where the brain is not able to inhibit those impulses. And so people tend to just act on them verbally or physically as well. So those are the three core. And we traditionally look to identify one of three kinds of subtypes, and that would be your ADHD, predominantly inattentive. ADHD, predominantly hyperactive impulsive, or your ADHD combined type, which would be all three of those together.
0: Wow. that No, that's really interesting. And so what's really interesting also, especially in women, and it's funny you should say that, I see a lot of women now who do present with anxiety and perhaps depression. And when they dive deep and often they've gone on the journey themselves, that they start to question whether they have ADHD, which is triggering their anxiety. Is that something that you also see in clinic, that there is an overlying anxiety, but no one's really thought about ADHD because women are not presenting with that hyperactivity?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Not that I think it always masks. So the comorbid conditions, anxiety and depression, do seem to co-occur roughly around sort of 80%. So, you know, it, it is very high. The challenge really, and this is for boys and for girls, is that ADHD essentially is a diagnosis of exclusion. And I think we've forgotten that. Now there are other conditions, severe anxiety disorders that can lead to and create all of the exact same symptoms as can severe depression (laughs) create the same. And when you look at the neurobiology of all of these, you know, and you throw autism into the mix, for example, The overlap is overwhelming. And I think that's why it is probably one of the more difficult conditions to diagnose. And it goes overdiagnosed in many, many cases. And it goes underdiagnosed in many, many cases. Because we just, in a sense, we don't quite have the tools to readily discriminate between all of these. But yeah, it is, I think, often in women, lost to a degree by anxiety, but I do think that there are still clear signs of ADHD there that we're not looking for, that we're missing, that would probably be more valid markers of the condition in women than say getting lost in the anxiety space.
0: Right. right. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, it makes a lot of sense. So if someone wants to know if they've got ADHD and they come to see you, what journey do you take them on in terms of getting a diagnosis? I know you do a really thorough assessment and analysis, and then finally
1: hypnosis. Yeah, so I work on a, a slightly different model, I suppose, due to that frustration of really struggling to differentiate ADHD, autism, bipolar, you know, the overlaps being huge. So the traditional method is to do clinical questionnaires, clinical interviews, and try and gather as much data, particularly when you're screening adults, adult women, adult men. And to get some data from their early childhood, school reports, parent feedback, parent reports, to try and establish, you know, were those symptoms or behavioral signs of it present before that age? And I think that is still vital you know, to establish that there is an onset in childhood because there is no adult onset ADHD. If that occurs, there is something else driving it that you need to look for. It is a developmental disorder in the brain. And so we should see some signs before age 12. So I still do that clinical intake questionnaire. I still do a very large screening questionnaire that looks for other developmental milestones, as well as the clinical interview to try and establish what symptoms are currently present in their workplace. So we're looking more at the behavioral manifestation and then going back in time to that childhood period to try and see if we can see similarities and that kind of behavior back then as well. Second to that, which many psychs do include, which would be the kind of cognitive testing in various forms, not all do this, but I think an invaluable test to do is a broad spectrum neurocognitive assessment that looks to identify areas we know to be somewhat impaired in ADHD. And so that cognitive assessment will try to identify things like working memory problems with sustained attention, shifting attention, dividing your attention, short-term long-term memory, processing speed, response time. So a lot of these areas have been found to be red flags for ADHD. So I will certainly do that and screen for others that may include perception, visual perception, auditory perception, to try and rule out this may not be driven by learning disability or a visual issue, meaning they can't sustain visual attention or track information on a page that can equally look like ADHD, but may actually be a very different developmental disorder. The third piece, and this is where maybe I would say I differentiate myself, is I look at the brain. You know, I truly espouse to the work of Dr. Amen, the psychiatrist in the US, who I think is well known in the world of ADHD and many other brain mental disorders. But he started with EEGs and then moved to using SPECT scans because his basis was how can we psychologists and psychiatrists not look at the very awkward retreat when every other medical professional does. And so I use QEEGs to try and see if we can functionally see parts of the brain that we commonly know are involved in ADHD that may not be functioning. And that often shows up in changes in the electrical activity, but we've now got databases of human brains, differentiated male, female, where we can compare that EEG to 2 and see just how statistically deviant those parts of the brain are from what we would expect to see as normal or call normal function. Many don't know about quantitative EEGs or that the FDA actually approved quantitative EEG for assisting diagnosis in under 17 year olds. That's just because that's all the data that was provided to them. But certainly, I think we now have enough QEEG data to show the kind of heterogeneity that exists within ADHD. In other words, it's not one thing, it's caused by multiple driving factors we're never going to find a single biomarker. I think the hunt for a single biomarker in each of these mental health conditions like depression, it doesn't make sense. They are maybe looking the same, but they are usually caused by very different factors coming together. So what we at least have in the world of QEG over the last sort of 20, 30 years is we've got multiple maps of ADHD brains to show that there is anywhere up to about five different patterns, for want of a better word, that you may see within the EEG. And so that would be sort of my third piece of the puzzle that will help me confirm, but at least be able to show some of my patients what's actually going on in their brain. They're not making this up, you know, it's it's real.
0: I think you've made some really, really important points, which I'm just going to reiterate. First of all, developmental disorder has to exist before the age of 12, you were saying, before the age of 12, some signs of it. And there is no such thing as adult onset ADHD. And I think those three important, really important points. And also what you mentioned about, it is very much overlapping with other conditions. So it's sometimes really hard to pinpoint is this ADHD? Is this anxiety? Is this depression? And you're right, it's a diagnosis exclusion. So I've actually learned a lot from this conversation because sure. we're actually not <laughs> trained in it and to the point where we have to do our own research and have to yeah. understand it ourselves. I love the fact that, yes, we, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists, when we treat the brain, we're not actually looking at the organ itself. It's so funny. It? it really is. And so what you're doing, you're seeing something that's often black and white the patient can start to understand what's going on in their body. And sometimes we need to see that rather than a concept or talking about it, which, you know, mental health is all about talking and coming up with, you know, a subjective understanding of what they're going through. So often you can get different diagnoses as well from different people. So you're absolutely right. Wow, so that must take a lot of time, Ryan, to come to that diagnosis. So if a patient comes to you, are we spending a couple of hours with that patient to come to a diagnosis?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the initial would normally be around a two-hour process to get all three of those sort of elements together. In the background, it probably takes me another three hours, four hours of trying to pull all the data together and you know, scrutinising the raw EEG as well as using these database comparisons to to try and make sense of what we're seeing. And I think that's the real key. You know, QEG alone, despite you know, the approval from the FDA for the under-17s, it's not a standalone tool because there are overlaps with other mental health conditions that will show similar patterns, such as bipolar. So, you know, it really is there is that confirmation. It takes accuracy anywhere from 60-odd percent up to over 80%, according to one uh, rate of study. Most of my ADHDs will perform really well on a cognitive test because it's novel, it's an exciting sort of kind of experiment and they can, for that moment, just pull all the resources together. So, you know, I think each piece, clinical interview can be very unreliable. People are terrible raters looking back. Most people want the label of ADHD and unfortunately may overstate their symptoms. So parents can be terrible reporters when reflecting back to childhood. future. So I think you've got to have that full robust process to get as many pieces of the puzzle together. And then, yeah, we would spend another hour or hour and a half going through all of the information looking at it and then sort of discussing you know what sort of all the kind of treatment pathways that you have going forward for that kind of eeg pattern in particular and that's you know i, I include that in the diagnosis but actually for me it's very helpful to identify and confirm significant sleep issues which you know, will be a priority in ADHD, but also we are seeing data come out where we can match medication to the EEG. So this whole pharmacode EEG, where at the very least you can rule out what won't work, which helps us to include what may. And then, of course, in my world, I tend to try and use the non-medications. I'm not a doctor, so that would only be a conversation I privately have with a the doctor. But I would then look, well, what supplements do we know have similar methods of action? To that kind of medication, and can we use that on the CEG to see if we can create a shift or create a change in the book?
0: Fantastic, fantastic. We'll go on to that. But what would you say the key strategies are to help them? You mentioned actually sleep. Is there anything else that you would really start honing in on when they come and see you?
1: Look, sleep is significant. I, you know, never want to gloss over. There is a lot of data coming out. There are even some proponents who go, "Is ADHD a sleep disorder?" Because the common that the, the two thirds majority of is tend to show a brain that we would call under aroused. We've known this, psychiatry has known this for a long time, hence the need for a stimulant to increase the vigilance in the brain. Now, 75% of kids with ADHD have a diagnosable sleep disorder, which is significant. So what's going on? Now, then you've got this emerging data now that came out of the UK of a 20-year sort of follow-up study looking at preteen and teenagers sleep patterns and those getting less than the nine hours. It concluded it was predictive of mental illness in adulthood. So, you know, we've moved beyond the correlational to we see the changes happening in the brain. So it included EEG in the study, which is great. You could see how the networks got damaged effectively, where the brain wasn't able to shift into attentional network. It couldn't shift out of this default resting network, which is what ADHD effectively is. So sleep is a major, major contributor, no doubt. And so I would always suggest focusing on that. And in many cases, when sleep is restorative and and they're getting their seven and a half hours as an adult, I've had many who no longer feel their ADHD. And there are treatments out there. We'll probably talk about things like neurofeedback that inadvertently over the last 20, 30 years happened to be working on the part of the brain that regulated the sleep circuitry. So sleep is important. The second for me would be the nutritional aspects, because we do have a very large database of literature that I really am surprised people aren't paying attention to on the kinds of deficiencies found in children and adults with ADHD. These are repeated studies, they're not one-offs, they're large sizes that have repeatedly shown blood cell omega-3, omega-6 counts, to show that the ratio between the two is significantly high. In other words, there is a chronic deficit of omega-3. Makes sense. Molecule that's needed for the brain to wire in childhood. ADHD is to some degree regarded as maturation lag disorder. So there is a link there. Zinc repeatedly shows up as being highly deficient. Which you know, if we get into the neurobiology, would mean that copper would be in excess, and I think that is a very, very important link to look for in most people is the ratio between zinc and copper. The third is magnesium. I mean, eighty odd percent of the general population seem to be at a when you do sort of cell assays that they are deficient in magnesium, but definitely within ADHD that repeatedly comes up. So. Yeah, just even those three, if you can look at, and the fourth would be your vitamin D. No surprises there, but that again seems to be emerging as another sort of neural hormone that appears to be chronically deficient in this group. So nutrition, yeah.
0: I love how you mentioned it. I was just cheering when you said sleep. And that's when I go to the next step with my patients about screen time. And they always look at me. I go, that's how I relax. That's how I, you know, go on my phones just before bed and how that's impacting sleep. And they're waking up in the night and that becomes their norm. They're just so used to an interrupted sleep. And then that's how they function. They just literally push throughout the day. And you're right. I loved what you mentioned about sleep. And I'm so excited that you mentioned nutrition. We underplay it, especially in mental health. How much do we need it? Like vitamin D is a cofactor for serotonin, just as an example. We're so deficient in magnesium. It's needed for over 600 chemical reactions in the body, it's needed for our calming neurotransmitters. It is calming in itself. So I loved how you mentioned all of that. And, you know, we can go on and on about nutrition and what's playing, the factors playing against it. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan, sleep and nutrition, two key things that patients or anyone that's listening can take action right now, I would say.
1: And just to pick up on that point, I think, you know, sunlight, sunlight exposure or light exposure, you know, despite the long list of benefits of getting sunlight throughout the day, in that it activates, turns on half of our DNA, but it is responsible for the gut trigger for producing serotonin, getting that conversion process from tryptophan to serotonin, that it is responsible for the triggering of mitochondrial generation in the gut as well. But the biggest is the regulation of your circadian clock. So, you know, a little tidbit about ADHD, they've done the study twice now where they've looked around the world at, as to regions of highest and lowest diagnoses. It happens to be that the areas that have the lowest sunlight exposure have the highest ADHD incidences. So this is looking at, you know, East Coast, West Coast, US, similar in Australia, throughout Europe, except in France, because France don't recognise ADHD as a condition. So...
0: (laughs) That's another story, Um, right? (laughs) That's another story.
1: (laughs) You know, there is clearly something within the circadian clock, there is clearly something in the sleep issues and the number one cause of the sleep issues is sunlight or light exposure, blue light exposure from all the devices that we're on, LED lights in the house, LED lights, you know, that blue light coming from your iPhone and your iPads. You know, that any 15, 20-minute session on that can suppress your melatonin production up to 40 minutes. So we're switching off the sleep hormone by exposing ourselves after eight o'clock, roughly, to this kind of blue light. So I'm glad you picked up on that because I think it is vital in helping people with ADHD regulate. Equally, get out in the morning and get that sunlight in your face. You know, I said to to all my ADHDs, in fact, there is evidence from some blue light exposure therapy that it can help up to 50% of, of children with ADHD. So don't ignore light. It's vital. It seems to be a very important component
0: in ADHD. Absolutely. And Ryan, what about movement and exercise?
1: Again, very, very important. And you know, there is probably two robust enough studies showing that moderately intense exercise can reduce the ADHD symptoms up to 50%. And that sort of makes sense. You know, if you come back to the biology A, we believe ADHD to be a dopaminergic disorder. It's not only, but you know, largely dopamine seems to be the problem, more so that there are lower numbers of dopamine receptors within the brains of ADHD is, and uh, exercise boosts dopamine. So there is probably a link there. I suspect it's more than that. I suspect two things. One, exercise is anti-inflammatory, and there is no question in my mind that the vast majority of our brain disorders are neuroinflammation. At least their origins are, and I think that that probably maintains them, and, and ADHD is no different. So um, exercise can help you better regulate That's moderately intense, not intense. Um, The second is blood flow to the brain. So perfusion in the brain. If you're looking at the brain of two-thirds of the kind of ADHD people we look at, they are showing either a very slow theta rhythm in the front, which is stage two sleep, effectively, or stage one, that kind of transition stage, alpha in the frontal lobe. And alpha and theta, these slow oscillations in the brain, that tend to switch things off functionally, are correlated with a dropping of blood flow. So to create that slow wave, you have to have a lowering of blood perfusion. To create the fast beta brain wave, which would counter all of that, that's the vigilance stabilization system, you know, that gets you alert and awake and processing information. That's associated with an increase of blood flow, particularly into the frontal lobe. So that is what exercise is doing. It's increasing that blood flow into the brain. So there are studies to show that that kind of improvement that occurs in the morning from exercise can last between four and six hours Wow! in terms of boosting your cognitive processes, particularly attention. So definitely another vital component of of treating this, yes.
0: Fantastic, Ryan. I think that was an amazing summary of ADHD and what we can do about it and just to Just to reiterate the importance of sleep, movement and nutrition and omega-3s, the zinc, magnesium and vitamin D. That's something that's very easily um, addressed as well. Thank you so much, Ryan, for your time today. And before we leave you, where can people find you?
1: Sure. So probably the website would be the best place to start, which is neuroperformance.com.au. On the contacts page, there is a link you can a book a complimentary kind of session just to have a chat with me so we can make sure that what I do is, is suitable. That's really important. My approach is not going to be suitable for everyone. So that just allows us to have a bit of a, a deep dive to, to make sure. Or there is an email address there too. So individuals can email me or a phone number, contact, leave a message. And normally I'll get back to you within a couple of days from the phone message. So email might be a little.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Ryan.
1: Thanks, Shami. Lovely talking to you.
0: Remember that this is general advice only. Please see your healthcare professional for more information. So what's your take-home message today? Remember, it's all about progress and not perfection. And are you suffering from stress? Visit the Usawa Learning Hub on usawa.com.au for more resources on how to de-stress, re-energize and reclaim your health. Enjoy the journey.